Welcome to AUKUS Amplified from the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons. We're advancing hip and knee patient care through education, advocacy, and research. All right, welcome everybody. We have a great podcast for you tonight. My name is Arjun Saxena. I'm an orthopedic surgeon outside of Philadelphia working at the Rothman Institute. And I have a great panel here just going to try to help us to understand about, you know, now you've had your surgery, so now what? What are you going to do when you go home? And what's the plan for discharge? So I'd like to take a minute to thank the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons, also known as AUKUS, a really great organization that's just dedicated to furthering the advancement, the treatment, and the education of hip and knee replacement in our country and around the world. The first person I want to introduce today is Matt Bullock. He is an assistant professor at the Joan E. Edwards School of Medicine at Marshall University in Huntington, West Virginia. Dr. Bullock completed his fellowship in adult reconstruction at Wake Forest Baptist Medical Center in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And he specializes in all aspects of hip and knee surgery, including minimally invasive surgeries, robotic-assisted primary surgeries, as well as complex revision surgeries. Welcome, Matt. We're glad to have you here. Glad to be here. Next, I want to introduce Christy Kelly. She is the Joint Replacement Program Manager at Cable Huntington Hospital in Marshall Orthopedics. As an orthopedic nurse for over 20 years, Christy focuses on total joint arthroplasty patient quality outcomes pre- and post-operatively and process improvement and payer and regulatory metrics. Christy, thanks so much for being here tonight. We look forward to hearing all the tips that a navigator can give our patients. Thanks for having me. Next, we have Elise Teets. She has been an orthopedic nurse for over 10 years now. She has been a nurse navigator at the Rothman Institute for the last five years and most recently was moved into the role of lead nurse navigator where she is overseeing the Navigator data collection and leading projects such as our patient engagement platform and leading care coordination with new physicians that join the practice. Welcome, Elise. Thanks for having me. Great to see you. And finally, last but not least, we have Brett Levine. Brett is a professor of hip and knee replacement at Rush University in Chicago. He is one of the newest members of the Knee Society and the chair of the Patient and Public Relations Committee for AUKUS. Thanks for being here, Brett. Thanks for having me, Arjun. Great. So let's get to it. You know, the number one question I think a lot of patients ask us in the office is, what's going to happen after surgery? Am I going to go to rehab? Am I going to go home? Elise, you think you could take that one for me? Sure, sure. So, yeah, a lot of patients ask, you know, will I need to go to rehab from the hospital? And the answer is no. It's very rare that patients who have a single joint replacement will go to an inpatient rehab after surgery. Most patients do well enough that they can go home. And we find that patients end up doing better in the home. They're more comfortable, they sleep better, they can walk around freely, and they're at a reduced risk of infection. Um, With that being said, you will still be evaluated in the hospital. And based on your physical progress, any medical concerns, your home environment, and of course, your insurance guidelines, you may still meet the criteria for inpatient rehab, However, again, it's very rare. If you do need it, the discharge planner in the hospital will set that up. Yeah, thanks, Elise. That, that's great to hear that, you know, we can always make a plan to go home after surgery, but there's a backup plan too. We've actually seen studies that have demonstrated that patients that go to rehab versus ones who go directly home. And we see lower rates of infection, lower rates of returning back to the hospital and, and better outcomes in those patients that uh, go home right after surgery. I think something we want to add or at least mention here that is the growing nature of outpatient or same day hip and knee replacements. 
you know, it's something that we have here and it's growing across the United States is some of our very healthy patients that are very motivated and have good support at home were able to uh, complete their hip or knee replacement and go home on the same day. And that's been a true testament of how we've evolved over the, over the last 20 years on how a hip or knee replacement um, used to be. So the idea of staying one night in the hospital and going home or a couple nights and now being able to do it all, do a surgery and go home on the same day, uh, that's kind of the, the new wave of things to, to come and it can still safely be done. With the backup plan, if something's wrong, we can always stay in the hospital overnight. So, Matt, thanks. That's a great point. Christy, in your practice, do you have any tips as far as when people are asking, hey, should I go home the same day? Should I stay in the hospital? What do you see? So at our, our organization, all of our patients are assessed in advance for um, their medical condition, their home environment, and their discharge needs. And so when patients ask that question, we look at all of those factors and determine what their individual needs are. That's great. And, and when, when we talk about individual needs, Christy, what about home care? How about like visiting nurses, visiting physical therapists? What do you advise you, the patients to talk to you about these things? Most of our patients don't need home care these days. Most of our patients don't even need home physical therapy. Most of our patients utilize outpatient physical therapy. So they go to therapy once or twice a week for a few weeks if they even need that. And so home care isn't something that we use anymore for the majority of our patients. Interesting. And you know, Elise, you know, you had mentioned about the patient engagement platforms. Does that come into play at all? Or are there Absolutely. Yeah. So we utilize technology now and, you know, patients have a patient engagement platform that we use that gives them their home exercises in a phased process. So really patients have done very well utilizing that and it minimizes their need for outpatient physical therapy. When they come in at their follow-up many times, they'll kind of reassess whether or not they need outpatient physical therapy. Okay, great. What about Brett, in the hospital, as far as uh, with patients going home, what criteria do you see kind of in the hospital that patients need to do before they leave the hospital to be able to go home? As mentioned before, a lot of it starts with that preoperative assessment. Usually, uh, patients are contacted ahead of time, so we have a good idea of what they're facing at home. So that, that also kind of dictates what they have to accomplish. So if they have a lot of stairs at home, they're going to have to go up and down a flight or two of stairs uh, while they're here. And they're going to have to be able to show that they can get in and out of bed and take care of themselves. And on the flip side, if they don't have any stairs at home, it's a little bit easier. If they're all on one floor, then they can usually just get by with just doing one or two stairs before they have to leave. But they have to show that they can have a good level of independence and be safe at home. Great. So I think another topic we'll, we should talk about is, you know, if the patient comes home, like what to expect next? I mean, so you're coming home. Do we throw you a big party? How do we prepare for your homecoming. And a lot of that, again, is planning in advance, uh, I think. And it's something we kind of instill with our patients. You want to kind of plan ahead of time, what will you need to have on a daily basis? And this would include having, of course, your cell phone or a line of communication along with a cell phone charger, make sure that's close by. Having your television remote, being able to have your keys to the house to get in and out, being able to have that family member or the neighbor that's there but that's either going to pick you up and take you home from the hospital and uh, keep an eye on you once you're at home. And we do 
suggest that someone stay with you for the first night or two when you do get home just to help you transition to home. And that's kind of what we look at from a surgical standpoint. What else do you have on that part, Christy? Well, we recommend that before surgery, preparing your home and preparing your groceries. So having meals made in advance, having your groceries made in advance, and having supplies and having your support team ready in advance so that when you do go home, your home is prepared and you are ready for your environment. I think a question that we get a lot is sometimes the the patients when they get home, they don't have a strong appetite. And some of that's because of the anesthesia in their system. Uh, Still trying to get rid of the anesthesia and just normal foods won't taste right to them for, you know, a couple of weeks and for a couple of weeks after surgery. So I think, you know, planning ahead of having different meals planned out, uh, we always remind our patients that eating nutrient-rich foods that are high in fiber, high in protein, especially salads, that really help you heal to take in those uh, building blocks necessary to uh, heal from your hip or knee replacement. And so it's kind of thinking all of it together is taking the time to plan ahead to be ready for anything that you would need right after you come home from surgery. And that's something we help each individual patient plan for at least think about prior to their homecoming. Yeah, that's good stuff. We do the same thing and we like to have them have a family member or a coach or a care provider, whatever name you want to give it, just be involved so that uh, so that they can be prepared for, for coming home. And then when they are home, certainly in those first week or two, as you're transitioning to becoming more independent. Another question that I get asked a lot is when I get home as a patient, am I supposed to stay in the house? What can I do? Can I go anywhere? Uh, at least what do you tell your patients as far as what they can expect once they're home? Do they, are they basically on you know, house arrest or uh, do you advise them that they can do some other things? Yeah, we always encourage patients to get outside, get fresh air. We encourage patients to go for a walk. It's good for their mental health too. We don't want them to be stuck in the home as if they were sick people. You know, they're not sick. They need to go out and do normal things. Of course, with COVID right now, you have to be cautious, but we even say you can go on errands, go shopping, you can go to a restaurant or even take short trips as as long as you can tolerate it. But you should pay attention to your body and how your leg feels. You might see some more swelling or more discomfort, you know, the more activity that you do. So it's okay to back off on that, you know, when you feel that way. But yeah, it's definitely encouraged to get out. That's great. Um, you know, around here, we usually encourage fresh air, except right now that fresh air is at about minus 10 degrees. So we don't necessarily encourage them to, to grab that. But uh, Christy, do you guys tell them anything different for when they when they get home? Or do you place them on, on uh, you know, house arrest as well? No, we do tell them they need to be up and walking and being out of the house is the, one of the best things they can do. All right. Yeah, I think that's great advice. And I know patients are oftentimes scared about that. But I think once you start getting out of the house and doing things, you actually feel more like yourself and certainly can manage it. And that leads me to the next question that I get probably almost as often about staying in their house is when am I allowed to drive? And that's a very hot question that patients ask because, you know, they want to be able to get the physical therapy. They want to get to see their family. They want to they want to be able to get around and even shop and take care of themselves. So, Christy, what do you tell them as far as when you let them, them drive or when do you suggest it's okay for them to drive? So that can be up to surgeon specific. Some of our surgeons have different requirements, but we tell them certainly they shouldn't drive until it's safe. But if they've had, it's at least two weeks 
patients who had surgery on their left leg can usually drive within that two weeks. If it's on their right leg, they can usually drive within four weeks. But certainly patients are never allowed to drive when they're taking narcotic pain medicine. But again, some of our surgeons have different requirements and we tell them that they need to talk to their surgeon at their two-week follow-up appointment. Sure. Matt or Arjun, do you have any other additions to that or any changes uh, as far as when uh, you specifically let them drive? So I typically wait to about four weeks. And there's some literature out there that talks about you know, if you operate on the left side or the left leg, it can actually slow the reaction time of the right leg by up to 15 to 20%. So even if, you know, you can still drive with the right foot, I mean, you still want to be cautious. And I really make sure I see that patient back close to the four-week mark and we make a decision, yes, you can drive or, you know what, let's give it a couple more weeks. Because there's a lot of things that go on that your body has to coordinate when you drive. You don't want to have to think about having to go from gas to brake in an emergency type situation. So I think all my patients are usually told about about four weeks, and then we kind of reassess be, before they can drive. You know, I think Christy brought up a good point, you know, that every surgeon has individual protocols. And so it's really important to get that education, get that information from your surgeon specifically. Everybody's a little different, even patient-wise. So some patients can do things a little faster than others. I think Christy, again, made this great point. It has to be safe. So if you're going to get back to driving after a lower extremity surgery, whether it's a hip or knee replacement or an ankle fracture or anything, it's really important to probably go with somebody, maybe to an empty parking lot and, and just make sure you feel comfortable, you know, sitting in that driver's seat. So I think biggest key here is safety. Yeah. And I, I always tell them, uh, you have to remember that wherever you go, you got to come back. So when you leave to drive, you want to make sure that you start with short trips, not necessarily start taking long trips and then realize once you get where you're going, <laughs> you got a 45 minute to an hour drive back. So again, safety is definitely of the essence there. Some questions I get is, uh, according to, again, surgeon specific, but you know, a lot of patients ask, you know, how long am I on a walker? When do I know when to, when to use the cane? And this kind of goes back to Again, safety. We want that patient to have good balance uh, and good coordination and strength. And patients usually start off with a walker, whether you have a hip or a knee replacement, and usually on that for anywhere from a couple of days to a week. And then as your therapist usually works with you, they can usually transition you over to a cane by about one week. And then as long as you display or work on your balance and your strength improves, usually off a cane for a hip, usually within about two weeks. For a knee, it can be about three to four weeks on average before you get off a cane. But the idea is to normalize the way you walk, make sure you have good balance and safety. We got to keep in mind too that what type of environment are you in, right? So if it's winter time and you just had a hip or knee, you might want to use that walker outside just for added safety with snow and the ice or uneven terrain. And then just as another safety precaution is, is I tell some patients to have their cane with them. They can always carry their cane or hook it on something, but if they, as Brett was saying, if you drive somewhere, you got to come back. Well, the same philosophy occurs when you're walking. You walk for exercise, you walk out so far. Remember, you got to turn around and come back. Sometimes when you're recovering after a hip or knee, things aren't going to work as they should, or you're kind of building up your strength. You may need to rely on that cane in order to get back because you get tired a whole lot sooner. 
So as regards to that, again, an assistive device, it's really specific to the patient and to the surgeon, but usually we work on, does the therapist think you're okay safety-wise, and does the patient feel they're comfortable? Uh, I don't know, at least, do you tell anyone else, any of your patients, anything different? Or that's kind no, of no, Yeah, a lot of patients do ask, you know, am I going to get a walker in the hospital? And typically they are given in the hospital unless you're having surgery at a same day outpatient surgery center. But insurance does usually cover the, the whole cost of a walker. You may need to purchase the cane because it typically doesn't cover both pieces of equipment. But yeah, I usually tell them, use it as long as you can walk straight. You want to get in the habit of walking straight without a limp. So it's okay if you need it for a little longer than a week, but really do it as tolerated. I tell you, a trick that we have is patients, you have to plan ahead, but looking at thrift stores, Goodwill, Salvation Army, we tell patients to go check those out. You can pick, patients can pick up a walker or a cane for a couple bucks if they're strapped for cash. But that's, you know, we have used that. And a lot of, you know, people that move out of houses and, you know, or move away, they tend to donate those devices and they can be found for uh, cheap as well. People are worried about the uh, cost of them if the insurance. Right. Or borrow them from a family member. Yeah. Well, that's great. Another question that we hear a lot from patients, and I think our nurse navigators could probably help us a little bit with this, is the question of uh, when can I return to work? What do you typically counsel your patients, uh, at least as far as when they typically return to work after surgery? Yeah, this is a very common question that I get. It really varies depending on the type of work that you do. Some patients can return to work a few weeks after surgery. It's really when you feel ready to return to work, you may. Most patients, I would say, are typically out of work for four to six weeks. But again, that varies depending on the type of work you do. If you have a very physically demanding job, many times you may have to be out for about three months without restrictions. So it really just varies. But some patients I've seen even go back to work in seven to 10 days if they have flexibility to work from home, things like that. But Overall, four to six weeks, typically. Chris, do you guys do anything differently? And how do you handle as far as like paperwork and stuff like that? And patients bring that in. Does that just get dropped off to the office and the individual surgeon's team fills it out? Or do you guys prepare ahead of time for if a person needs any disability or anything like that? Yeah, so we tell the patients about the same four to six weeks is average, up to three months. But depending on the patient's job, we have patients go back to work as early as a week after surgery but four to six weeks is pretty typical. And as far as paperwork goes in the mandatory joint class that every patient receives in advance, they're educated that the disability paperwork that some patients need to have completed for their jobs, that is um, to be completed before surgery. And we ask that they give us at least two weeks before their surgery to complete that. And that's dropped off at the surgeon's office like I said, about two weeks before surgery. I was going to say, that's another thing you bring up, Chrissy, about the pre-op education class. A lot of hospitals, a lot of medical practices have an education class for before surgery, which can really, really just help you be prepared, help you know what's going to happen. And when you know what to expect, it makes everything a little easier. So really important for, you know, we're talking about what happens after surgery. Well, it's really important to prepare for that before surgery. And if there's any education, the AUKUS patient education site has a lot of good information if, if your hospital or doctor doesn't have that. So a really good way to prepare. And another one that, you know, we get a lot of times after surgery is, oh my God, is it going to hurt? And 
how long am I going to need pain medicine? And with the opioid crisis we see nationwide, we certainly see it a lot in the Philadelphia area here. You know, am I going to become addicted? Elise, do you get these questions? Or how do you respond? Yes, very often. It's a very common concern. So it can differ from surgeon to surgeon. So you definitely want to talk to your doctor about what their pain regimen will be after surgery. Many docs are using a, a multimodal pain regimen now which sort of is a mixture between non-narcotics and narcotic pain medication to help reduce the use of narcotics. That might include Tylenol, anti-inflammatories, maybe a low-dose nerve pain medication, which greatly reduce the use of narcotics. But typically, if you're using it for a short duration, for knee replacements, we usually say about three weeks, give or take, maybe one week for a hip replacement. And if you're using it for acute surgical pain, it's very unlikely that you'd become addicted, but it's definitely worth talking to your doctor about it. Yeah, thanks. That's a really difficult conversation. And because, and, and you know, pain after surgery is certainly something that's scary. What do you guys see and hear about that in West Virginia? I think one thing that in every state's different, whereas how much narcotic we can dispense. So that's really changed the way we practice. Uh, in West Virginia, we're allowed to give one week supply of pain medicine when it comes to narcotics or opioids. So that, again, the preoperative instruction is we're going to give you one week's worth. It has to last that long. And we tell them, start by cutting your, your pain medication in half, your pill in half, take half of it. If you can tolerate that, you're fine. If you need that other half, you can go ahead and take it. But state law, I cannot give you that next refill for at least seven days from this. And for the majority part, I think we last maybe, I'd say, 20 to 30 percent actually need another prescription for that second week of narcotics so that's really been a big change here i don't know christy did you have yeah, any other it, so we use a pain contract with our patients that they're given in advance to read through and then they sign it before surgery to so that they have a full understanding of that process and since our implementation of that process has really helped reduce our opioid use and Matt, what about, you know, I know in your past life, you were a physical therapist. So what do you tell patients as far as therapy and, and taking pain medicine? So this is always a hot topic and, and, and you know, patients don't want to have pain. And then pain is part of the body's response after surgery. And you need to help control that pain to allow you to participate in therapy to see and get the best benefit of working with, with your therapist. So initially, the first week or two, the patients are going to have some pain, some swelling, and we encourage narcotic use for at least the first week or two. And we have the patient time things out, so they're taking their narcotic about an hour before their therapy session. So it's at least on board when they show up and they're going to work with their therapist, again, allowing them to participate in the exercises that they have to work with. And then usually after those two weeks, we can transition the patient off down to maybe a lower dose pain meds such as tramadol or things like Tylenol or even some of the topical creams and ointments that have anti-inflammatories in them as long as they don't put it over the incision. But then we have them coordinate this about two weeks after they started therapy to again maximize their participation. So that usually helps and then the multimodal approach always use ice, especially after your therapy session to help with pain, with swelling. And we encourage ice a lot, especially before they go to bed. Because if you think about it, that patient's up walking around doing things all day, when you try to rest at night, 
that knee is still upset, it's still aggravated, it still wants to move, and ice is a good way to help things calm down in preparation for a restful night. So, uh, is that kind of what you guys use as well, or or suggest? That's kind of how we practice with the pain medicine and coordinating with therapy. Yeah, no, I, same exact thing. You know, take the pain pill an hour before therapy. And yeah, I agree, especially with knee replacements. Ice is a great method to control inflammation and pain. And even if you know you go online or go to a medical supply store and get one of those ice machines, a really, really nice way to kind of help control pain and inflammation after surgery. I do want to mention too that we recommend to our patients repositioning and of course rest at times, but also we tell our patients mobility. So in between therapy sessions, they're going to rest, but then they're going to get stiff. And so to manage pain, we tell our patients, get up and take a walk around the house because that's going to help break up some scar tissue and help ease some of that throbbing pain. Just get up and take a walk, and that's going to help with some of the pain as well. So just the pain of just resting, sometimes just getting up and taking a walk will sometimes help. I think you lead to a good topic here, too, that we haven't really hit yet. Uh, was the idea of uh, blood thinners and then your risk of blood clot after surgery, uh, especially after a hip or knee replacement. The more motion, the better, because you can use the muscles to pump the blood so the blood doesn't get clotted or doesn't stay in one place. We also usually use some type of compression stocking or compression device on both legs. We typically use aspirin for most of our blood thinners for all our patients. Rarely do we have to use some of the stronger blood thinners that are available, especially the uh, Lovenox injections. Those can be kind of a nuisance, but sometimes they're necessary for our high-risk patients. Brett, what do you guys use for anticoagulation? We usually try to go on the lighter side if a person is healthy and active, um, where we'll use aspirin, either a baby aspirin or an aspirin. Some of our doc do uh, things a little bit differently. Uh, I think across the country, some people will use baby aspirin or regular aspirin. And in the patients who have a little bit of a higher risk for clotting, we'll use a uh, different medicine, an an oral anticoagulant that's a little bit stronger, like an Eliquis or Xarelto or something along those lines. But we we really encourage them to get up and get moving. And we stress that that's probably one of the most important things for them is really to get moving as early as they can. That being said, uh, one one of the things they'll ask us with regards to moving is when can a patient shower? I think people handle that differently, but at least what do you tell your patients as far as when they ask that question, when can I shower when I get home? Yeah, a lot of surgeons have a different preference. So you definitely want to refer to your discharge instructions and talk to your doctor about that. But typically you can shower within a few days after surgery. You just want to make sure that you feel comfortable and that you're safe to get in the shower. Many patients get a shower chair or maybe a rubber mat to prevent any slips and falls in the shower. That's important. The most important thing is that you should not submerge your incision into a pool or a hot tub for at least probably six weeks after surgery until your incision is fully healed. But depending on the type of dressing that your doctor uses, many of them are waterproof. So you may be able to shower with that on. Once the dressing is off, many times you can let the soap and water run over the incision. You just wanna make sure you pat that down dry with a clean towel that's separate from the towel that you're using for the rest of your body. So maintaining the incision clean and dry is the best way to prevent infection. And uh, and Chris, we get the question um, not infrequently as far as uh, how do I prepare for home? Do do I get a shower chair? How do I prepare my shower? What what do you tell them? Do do they need to 
to retrofit their bathroom or make any major reconstruction changes in their house? Or what, what do you suggest they do? So we tell patients that they don't need to get any special equipment to shower. They can bend their knee up. They can step into their shower to shower. They don't need any special equipment. No need to retrofit. I think that the non-slip mat is a great idea for most patients, but they don't need any special equipment. If they feel they need to sit down, they can get a shower chair, but certainly it's not necessary for most patients. Yeah, it's typically not covered by insurance as well. And maybe just like a grab bar, one of those would be more helpful. Yeah, I, I usually tell them if they are going to get a chair for the shower, they may want to go the cheaper route and just get a, a waterproof type chair that's, right. that's stable to the ground because some of those shower chairs can be expensive and then it never seems to be covered by insurance. Guys, this has all been really great, a lot of good information for our patients. What's interesting when I'm in the office with patients is sometimes people will say, well, my cousin had a hip replacement and they did it this way. They did it in you know, Oklahoma or something like that, somewhere else. So, Brett, how do you handle those types of questions that people are, you know, their neighbors telling them they did it this way or their cousins saying, hey, yeah, if you have your hip replacement, you should be back to work in a week. What do you tell those patients, Brett? That can be a frustrating thing on both ends for both the doc and the patient, uh, hearing conflicting things and people in their ears. Sometimes it could be nurses at the hospital, it could be physical therapists, it could be just their friends, their family. And so, you know, the best thing to do is talk to your team and your team should consist of whoever, again, is going to be like your coach or care provider, your physician. All of you guys should be on the same page. And if you are, that's really what you should follow. It's not a great idea to, to just kind of one off and say, oh, my, my friend was climbing a ladder at two weeks, so I can climb a ladder. Or I could be on the roof changing the shingles in, in three weeks. Um, that's totally allowed. So we try to emphasize that patients get an email address from my team. They have a phone number to reach us directly. We're very, very open to be reached. And we encourage patients to reach out to us if there's any questions rather than just assume that their neighbor that had the same surgery, it's the same exact thing that should be done. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. Thanks, Brett. So Elise, what about when patients ask you about those types of issues? And then another thing as a navigator, how do patients, you know, what's a couple of methods where they can kind of contact their team? How do you coach them on that? Yeah. So, I mean, I get the same question all the time. Like my neighbor had home care or they went to rehab for four weeks but that might have been five years ago. And so much has changed, even in the 10 years I've been in orthopedics, even in the past two years, things are just getting better and better because we have so much evidence-based research that we can do to improve outcomes. But yeah, patients are able to call the navigator. We have a mobile phone that they call, and we actually always have someone on call on after hours and on weekends from the joint team a nurse dedicated to each specialty that can answer any questions. So we're very accessible to the patients. So we hope that we always encourage that they call before, you know, going off and doing some crazy activity or going to the emergency room because they're concerned about something. What about you, Christy, as far as what do you tell the patients as far as accessibility after surgery and calls and things like that? We give our patients a lot of education both before and after surgery. And so we hope that they're well prepared with what to expect. But if they were to need to call us, they have the office number for the doctor's office. They are given the hospital's number, the emergency room's number, but they also are given a 24-hour answering service number. So they can call us 24 hours. 
That's all fantastic information there. And I think that the next question I'm going to move into kind of also covers this, this last question. As a personal experience, my father had his knee replaced and then about 10 years later was having the other side done and was remembering back 10 years earlier and was telling me how easy it was and how he didn't take any pain medicine and he never went to any physical therapy and, and it was a piece of cake. And so when patients and friends tell you things, sometimes they might be forgetting what it was like 10 years ago when they had the surgery or sometimes they black out a part of it. So, you know, it's, it's not, not always, not always a, a perfect advice to take that from a friend or a family member and you could take it with a grain of salt, but uh, certainly uh, uh, listen to your care team. And that brings me to, uh, he again thought he covered in about four or five days and was back to normal playing golf within a couple of weeks, but that really wasn't the case. And when patients ask, how long does it take to recover? Uh, at least what do you tell them? When can they anticipate to get back to some of the activities they want to do? Sure. Yeah. We usually say the initial recovery is about six to 12 weeks, but it can take up to a year to feel normal again, sometimes even up to two years till you have like no discomfort whatsoever. But six to 12 weeks is usually the time frame where you can start to go back into your regular activities, start to do things like golf, things that you like to do with less pain than you did before surgery. But the time definitely varies from patient to patient, depending on your pre-op condition, you know, how deconditioned you were prior to surgery. Obesity is definitely one of them. We always encourage patients to lose weight prior to surgery. Tobacco use, that definitely slows healing. We always encourage patients to quit smoking prior to surgery. There's many studies on that that show an increased complication after surgery, just their overall motivation. Physical therapy is so important. So some patients are more motivated than others and your natural ability to heal. Some patients have more inflammation after surgery than others, more bruising. So you really just have to listen to your body. And Chris, do you have any guides for them or suggestions as far as what, what they should return to, or as far as activities or potential restrictions for, for certain things that they should try to avoid as they're recovering? We tell patients that they can re return to activities as they feel they're able. So if a patient wants to get out on the golf course in four weeks and they feel like they're able to, then certainly we allow them to do that if it's safe. But we don't want patients to go out and run a marathon in the first four weeks after surgery, but return to activity as they feel like they're able to. Great. For Arjun and Matt, do you guys have any restrictions or, or suggestions for things that patients maybe should or shouldn't do? I mean, there's definitely the difference between what they can do and what they should do. Yeah, I mean, from my standpoint, it's heavy impact exercises, especially for knees. I don't want them to take up running along the side of the road 10 miles a day for exercise. That has a tendency where, where things might, might break down a little bit sooner than what we want. And then, you know, for our hips, people want to stay healthy and get to the gym, but I try to have them use a, an ounce of caution, especially if they want to start taking up yoga, because sometimes some of the poses and stretches uh, that are required for yoga, the, the hip implant sometimes isn't designed for them, ex those extreme ranges of motion. But beyond heavy impact stuff and, you know, large or, or abnormal range of motion or stretches, I, I let the patients do pretty much whatever they want, including, you know, golf, tennis, skiing. We have one guy uh, that went back to rock climbing. So whatever they can do within reason, an Argentine. Yeah, about the same. And, you know, Elise, I think you brought up a great point that 
evidence, even our evidence-based studies show that people continue to improve after these hip and knee replacements for up to a year and even sometimes two years after the surgery. So while most of your recovery, let's say 90% might be in that first six to 12 weeks, you still will improve over the course of the next, you know, nine or even 21 months after that. And then as far as activity, you know, I kind of throw the question back at the patients almost because my theory is whatever activity you've been doing in the last six to 12 weeks is probably what you'll be able to get back to. And the hope is you can do that without pain and enjoy it more. Certainly, you know, I, I push my patients to try and do everything they want to do, but just being realistic, you know, if you haven't skied in 10 years and, and, you know, you get your knee replacement, you may or may not be able to get back to skiing. But, you know, if you were skiing last season and, you know, you just had a bum knee and you took Motrin and took cortisone shots and you just need to get the knee fixed up with a knee replacement, yeah, it's pretty reasonable to get back to the next season. So everybody's a little different. And it's certainly, I think we can see through all our conversation this evening that there's certainly an individualized approach for this and everyone's a little different. I think another question that you know, that we have to kind of talk about here is is you know we always I bet all of us get well, how long is my new knee or my new hip going to last? And there's a lot that goes into that question. You know, I know when I'm faced with that, how active are you? What type of things do you want to do with your hip or knee? Because the new hip or knee replacement is kind of like a set of car tires, right? The more you use it eventually you're going to wear some wear the tread out to where you can you know actually have to get new tires or in this case you have a new hip or knee replacement the more you use it you may wear things out and have to have a redo surgery so that 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 question's always kind of a double-edged sword uh brett i don't know what you usually tell your patients on that yeah i I tell them uh, something similar and that it's definitely different based upon their activity level I use a similar analogy in that if you buy a brand new car and you park it in the garage, it's never, ever going to wear out and it's going to be brand new 10 years later. And then if you drive it off road every day, it's probably going to wear out and you're going to need a new car in three or four years and try to find that middle of the road. Moderation as far as activities go is probably the best way to go. And, And there are definitely some numbers we tend to throw at them. I usually give them something along the lines of about 1% per year, roughly, and it's probably a little bit less than that. But I think um, if you take all provisions and all potential possibilities for joint failing, so at 20 years down the road, about 80% or so people at least are going to have the same exact implant in place is what we're anticipating. Uh, 15 years is going to be about uh, 85%. So, but I do stress the importance. I think personally, I may be a, a little bit of an anomaly from my practice. I do suggest the patients follow up. And uh, for me, it's every other year for the first 10 years and then every year after 10 years. And that may be a little aggressive, but we found uh, at least in our research, when we try to follow patients and we tell them to follow up five years later, the people that follow up are, are very few. So it's important as patients are listening to this, that you have to remember once you do get a replacement, it's with you for the rest of your life. You want to take some responsibility for it. So treat it right. The low impact activities, as you heard, are probably the best thing for you. Make sure you do follow up so you do get that checkup. You wouldn't go 10 years without having your brain pads checked. So make sure you do check in with your doc and whatever their protocols are as far as follow-up goes. Arden, you do recommend anything different as far as follow-up goes or would you tell them for the, how long it's going to last? No, no, pretty similar. I think my statements to my patients are kind of in line with yours and Matt's statements, which are pretty much in line with the literature and the follow-up that we have. So about the same, and I couldn't agree more that follow-up is important. So yeah, whatever your surgeon's follow-up protocols are, it's really helpful for the surgeon for you to, them to see these patients. 
our CU back in their clinic and, and get an x-ray and see if the plastic's wearing out or something like that. I guess this has been fantastic. I guess you know, I want to throw it back to Elise and Christy. Maybe, maybe Christy could go first. Are there any questions that maybe you guys get that, you know, we haven't touched upon? And maybe there's questions that patients feel more comfortable asking a nurse navigator that they don't ask the doctor or anything else we can add to this? Sometimes patients ask about returning to sexual activity after a hip or knee replacement surgery. And we tell them that they can return to activity with some modifications as they feel comfortable. Yeah, Chrissy, you know, I'm glad you brought it up. It is a question that we don't often get, but I'm sure everyone's thinking it. A shameless plug for a patient relations uh, and education website on the AAHKS website. We actually have a bit of a guideline on safely returning to sex after surgery. So many patients are asking these types of questions, so I think it's going to be really helpful for them. Great. I was taking some notes as everyone was speaking, and the kind of regardless of the question, it seemed like we had like three recurrent themes throughout when talking about you know, after surgery, you know, going home and what do I do? Number one was preparation. So kind of planning for that. Number two was safety. You know, whatever we end up doing, just making sure it's safe, whether it's driving, switching to a cane, what have you. And then number three, you know, that communication with your surgeon and their team. And I think if patients can kind of take those three things and apply them to their post-discharge activities and status, I think they'll have a good outcome. So I want to thank everyone so much. Great comments. It was so great to have uh, nurses and doctors on this call. And thanks so much for listening to all those that listen. Thank you for joining us for AUKUS Amplified. Visit aahks.org to learn more about how members of the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons educate, advocate, and investigate in the field of hip and knee replacement surgery.